This episode of See Here is dedicated to the Duke of Dirty, the legendary one-eyed Jack himself, Mr. Andre Williams. May you rest in funky filth, Andre. Episode 62 of the See Here podcast. Welcome. We discuss music-related films. My name's Morris. I'm here in Melbourne, and my two friends and colleagues in music filmdom are also on the Skype machine over in Bath, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Uh, good evening. And over in Brantford, Ontario, is Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. See Here podcast is just a download away, is just a download away. We're here tonight to talk to you about... A film released in 1970, it's a documentary about the Rolling Stones, or is it really? It's about a lot of things. The film is Gimme Shelter, directed by brothers Albert and David Males and Charlotte Zwerin. So what we're going to do is we're going to play the trailer for you. We have a lot to discuss about this film, and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome to The Breakfast Show. JFRC, this is Frank Terry, and let me repeat, the Rolling Stones free concert is going to be on tomorrow at the Altamont Speedway. Apparently, it's one of the most difficult things in the world to give a free concert. a sort of uh, microcosmic society, you know, which, which sets examples to the rest of America as to how one can behave in large gatherings. Stefan Ponick, KSAN Radio, San Francisco. 
Well, the Rolling Stones tour of the United States is over. They wound it up with a free concert at the Altamont Speedway for more than 300,000 people. There were four births, four deaths, and an awful lot of scuffles reported. We've received word that someone was stabbed to death in front of the stage by a member of the Hells Angels. Nothing's confirmed on that. We were there. We didn't see it. But we did see a lot. We want to know now what you saw. episode 62 of See Here, and we're here to talk to you about the film Gimme Shelter, directed by Albert and David Males and Charlotte Zwerin, came out in 1970. The IMDb summary, and they've gone and done a bang-up job as per usual, a harrowing documentary of the Stones' 1969 tour, with much of the focus on the tragic concert at Altamont. All right, let's go around the table with initial thoughts. Tim, this was your pick, and you said that this is one you'd wanted to discuss for a long time. So maybe instead of telling us about why you like the film or why you wanted to bring this film to the table, let's start off with what's your background with the Rolling Stones? Well, like anybody, there's no way that you could really avoid hearing the Stones when you were a kid growing up on AM radio. You heard, always heard Street Fight and Man, Mother's Little Helper. Get off of my cloud, everything. And then, you know, all through high school, as the Stones came into town, or the closest big town, big stadium, it was always an event. And then I remember being in high school in the 80s when uh, they came up with that film, uh, Let's Spend the Night Together, when that was a big deal, going to, and everyone going to the theater to see that. Yeah, it was like through uncles, every car stereo in the summertime, and every anywhere you went, man, it was hard to avoid the Stones. You know, everyone has their favorite periods of the Stones. But to me, some people say, no Taylor, no Jones, no Stones. Kind of lean that way myself. You know, Mick Taylor era was uh, some of my favorite stuff, as well as the stuff that they did with Brian Jones. And that's not to cast any shade on Sticky Fingers and Exile and Let It Bleed, which I love to death. But I still feel personally more uh, akin to the earlier stuff. Well, like Tim, growing up, it's difficult to not be familiar with uh, a whole bunch of their songs. I mean, watching Gimme Shelter, I knew pretty much everything in there, even though, to be honest, being a contrary person, <laughs> contrary bastard, frankly, I've never really been much of a fan. I don't own any of their records. I've never spent any time listening to them. I'm fairly ambivalent towards them, to be honest. So I have no real connection other than the fact that certain songs you just can't escape and they're there and they're part of the furniture in a way, aren't they? I could see you picking up a broomstick at home and playing air guitar to Monkey Man. I can see that. Come on. <laughs> don't, don't think I, I know that one. What album's that on? Monkey no, Man. Let it bleed. Okay, I know. I don't know. Had you seen this film or indeed any of the that, Rolling Stones films before? That is actually what I was going to say. This is a first time viewing for me. And no, I haven't seen any of the other documentaries. So coming back to you, Tim, why did you pick 
gimme shelter as this film, indeed above any of the other Rolling Stones films. All the other documentaries that came out about the Stones, they really didn't stand as a significant documentary history to me. This is an absolute bookend for the 60s. And, I mean, there's so much that we're going to discuss about this film that where this document just stands so significantly as the summer of 69, which coincidentally was also the summer of the Manson murders. Altmont was in December, but it was that whole year of 69 where the peace, love, and uh, happiness all came to a crashing halt. Mm. And I think that this is the definitive bookend to that decade. Whereas with all the other Stones documentaries, I think they're just Stones documentaries. To me, this is, like I say, this is an exclamation point at the end of of a decade. I do want to actually touch on a few of the other Rolling Stones films because I think that they serve as a good alternative history. Every film sort of reflects where the Stones were in popular culture at that point in time. So I think they'll make for a good comparison. We'll get to that in a few minutes. With all those other documentaries, you can definitively say that in no way, shape, or form could they ever be classified as a snuff movie. But with this one, it depends how you're looking at it. But I think in several ways, and we can get into further discussion about this, but I think... You could say that this was a snuff movie. You're right. We will get into this. I'm wondering that the film is less than the story about the death of Meredith Hunter. It almost seems like the film treats that as just a detail. And we can come to that when we get to the end of the film. Spoiler alert, Meredith Hunter dies. Uh, Just a little bit about my own background with the Stones. I mean, I guess like you, I was familiar with all the 60s hits. And I'm not a great fan of the Stones as an albums band in the 60s. For me, they were a singles band. And I've got this fantastic box set, The London Years, all the great Decca singles and B-sides. And I think that's absolutely majestic. For me, the golden age you mentioned before, Tim, everyone's got a favorite golden age of the Stones. Oh, yeah. And for me, it's that quartet of albums from Beggar's Banquet through to Exile on Main Street. The film itself, I first saw it about 20 years ago when an acquaintance of mine had bought the Criterion edition and he asked me to come over and have a watch of it. And I'd heard the stories about what Ultimate was about, hadn't had a chance to see the film. What I really like about how the film presents itself is you've got to sort of think about the nature of documentary films. So like a lot of documentaries are saying, right, here are the facts as we presented, or we found something to investigate and here are our conclusions. And this film started out as presumably being one thing. The Males Brothers wanted to show a film about the Rolling Stones' first tour of America in a few years, and presumably it was just going to be a concert film. I mean, there's a lot of concert footage from Madison Square Garden in New York City and then it ends up being something very different so I think they edited it in such a way that it presents itself almost like a really well told fiction film so you get shots of Charlie and Mick in the editing suite, get New York concert footage, you get the legal negotiations around the use of the Altamont Speedway with the Stones lawyer, at least I think he was the Stones lawyer you get some songs from the support act the crowd gathering at Altamont 
Altamont and then the Stones' performance at Altamont. And apart from a phone call early on in the film while the guys are sort of watching back the footage in the editing suite, we don't even know about the existence of the Hell's Angels until we get to Altamont, like about halfway or two-thirds of the way through the film. And it just seems to build itself up in the way that a fictitious, maybe not a thriller, but as a drama, we think everything's good and they're building this house of cards and we get to see the Stones doing their thing on stage and they're kings of the world. And then when we get to Altamont, that house of cards just gets blown away because of reasons that are seemingly out of their control. I think we've got one of the Hells Angels on the line, Sonny Barger. If I got that right, Sonny? Yeah. Okay, what's up? I didn't go there to police nothing, man. I ain't no cop. I ain't never gonna ever pretend to be a cop. And this Mick Jagger, like, put it all on the angels, man. Like, he used us for dupes, man. You know, and as far as I'm concerned, we were the biggest suckers for that idiot that I can ever see. And you know what? They told me if I could sit on the edge of the stage so nobody would climb over me, you know, I could drink beer until the show was over. And that's what I went there to do. But you know what? When they started messing over our bikes, they started it. It's very cleverly constructed, isn't it? The, the way that you kind of have Mick and Charlie in the editing room watching the footage with, I assume, the uh, the male's, or at least, you know, I don't know, but I assume it's the male's brothers in there talking about the footage. And I don't know, it's kind of quite meta to see them watching what has occurred mm. and to, uh, you know, edit that into the, the progression of the film. So you kind of jump forwards and backwards. I think in a way it gives the film a bit more power, yes. certainly towards the end when, uh, you know, what occurs occurs and you kind of see Jagger's response to it. it. kind of takes your breath away a little bit. It's very cleverly done. It's not like they knew what was going to happen there. That's nobody, the thing, isn't it? it nobody was did. Right time, right, right place. Right, but, yeah. but to me, the way it's constructed, you know, with the footage of the stones is almost like the dream, the, the glory of the 60s where everybody's just all enamored with the, the icons and the music and the fashion and everything and everything's all peachy keen and then the end of it is the reality of what the 60s became the beginning is almost like a high and then the end is like when you're coming down or you're having a bad trip like the nightmare or, or when everything becomes crystal clear like when you're becoming sober you know when you're you're seeing the nightmare in front of you that everything that was beauty and peace and love it's all a sham isn't it reality just right. comes crashing in actually yeah exactly the reality of it is like this nightmare mm. like it's almost like this surreal landscape you know where initially before everything was all fluffy unicorns and peace like i said patchouli and all this shit and then all of a sudden it's just doom there's a lack of control there you can see it with mm -hmm. the stones yep. on stage yep. just kind of like well man let's you know try and talk to the crowd and calm them down Right. People get weird, and you need people like the angels to keep people in line, but the angels also, you know, you don't bust people in the head for nothing. So both sides are uh, fucking up temporarily. Let's not keep fucking up. You think, right. hang on, this is the Rolling Stones, the biggest band right. in the world, and this shit is going on right in front of them, and right. they are as powerless as anyone else there. You know, this is all what gives the film its power, definitely. Right. Yeah. This is Mel Belli, the lawyer in San Francisco. Uh, I, I'm talking for the Rolling Stones. We, we've got uh, their managers and their principals here. 
I've j just heard that uh, you've offered them your speedway up there for their performance on Saturday. Is that right? As Morris had just mentioned earlier about the lawyer with the documents for Altmont and all that. And you would figure with a band that big, like you said, Bernie, the biggest band in the world, that their lawyer would have some guarantee of security there, that they would have arranged some type of major massive security there. And then when you read accounts about the Hells Angels being there, Grace Slick and a whole mess of people all keep coming back to this whole thing about being promised 500 bucks worth of beer to show yeah. up as security. And I'm thinking in my mind, if their lawyer thought, well, that sounds good to me, you know, it's like, you know, who the hell was this guy, man? Because he's out of his tree when you're, you know, when you're representing the Stones for like 500 bucks for a case of beer for security. Like, no. And especially when you're turned into the Hells Angels for security. <laughs> who, well, that's the thing. Who actually made that decision? I mean, that's not clear in the film, is it? No, is it actually... well, it's never, there, it's never really clear. See, that's, I think, one of the things about the film. They decide, right, we're going to show you what we show you. And there are a bunch of things which you have to read up separately they sure. just wanted to leave you with one impression so apparently what had happened was in i think may or june of 1969 the rolling stones had gone and done another big concert in hyde park in london and yeah. the hell's angels for whatever reason had been security detail at that concert but over there there was no issues there was no dramas and the everything. british angels are not the same as the american angels right. basically is what it boils yeah, down so to pretty much but yeah. it, it seems that mick jagger didn't know that i mean it still seems in 2019 like when you go to a typical concert and you see there's always like some security firm and everyone's been trained and everyone's got police registration and everyone's got a number you know who all the security guys are and everything is done very professionally and they're all answerable to someone and it seems like another world away it's well it's 50 years ago it's a yeah. lifetime well, it away is another world yeah. Right. When, yeah when this sort of thing happened it just seems incredible to us 50 years down the track that something like this could have happened we don't know what security detail was for concerts in general i was going to say you don't hear stories of you know like grateful dead playing at the Fillmore with hell's angels security and no. things like that you know it, it well, seems like it was a pretty uncommon or unusual Here, thing to do i think at that time a lot of people felt that they didn't need the security because of their idealism the whole initial idealism of, of like i say peace love and understanding and everything from the 60s that it's like well hey man you know we all believe in peace so we don't need anybody to to calm anybody down man because because even with woodstock when everybody was doing the badass and having trips they always had somebody that took them by the hand and took them over to the tent for some orange juice and laid them down on a cot and took care of them you know it, it was it was almost like this childlike innocence uh, to get back to the uh, the warning that I've received you may take it with how many however many grains of salt you wish that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest. But uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? Everybody thought, you know, well, we don't, well, why would we need that? You know, like nobody's going to do anything, get out of hand. This is where it kind of busted their balloon to me, where it's like you get this other group that comes in and says, fuck your idealism. 
we believe in the, the rule of, of man. We believe in the rule of force. I mean, you know, we don't believe in your your patchouli and your cheap ass hippie weed and all this stuff. Like we believe in, you know, what might makes right and that's it. So I think this is where, you know, you get these two opposing forces. got in this film two examples of opposing forces so there's what you speak about there with the rule of man versus the rule of nature and this film is the anti-woodstock there's a moment in the film where there's all this chaos the stones are on stage you're doing sympathy for the devil and there's this long shot i posted this photo in the sea here oh god yeah there's this bit where you see one of the hell's angels in so in the midground, Mick Jagger in the foreground, and he's oh yeah, and he's That's just the... looking at him for ten seconds, looking at him, think, and, and the look on that Hell's Angels face is never mind the audience. I've got contempt for you, Jagger. And early on in the film, yeah. we hear that phone call from Sonny Barger, who is I think you know yeah. one of the right. Hell's Angels. He's calling into the radio station to give the Hell's Angels side of events about what happened at Altamont. And his perspective was that, hey, listen, we're not into this idealism and Mick Jagger had us figured as dupes. We're only there to do what we did with $500 worth of beer and protect the stage. And that's what we did. But these hippie guys, they went and touched our bikes and they're the most valuable thing in the world to us. And once you try to mess around with our bikes, well, then you're going to get hurt. And that's right. all he was concerned about. Basically, from his set of morals, the rule of law, you're, you're mucking around with the rule of law. We, we don't subscribe to your rule. You have to subscribe to our rule. So there was that right. clash of heads. But the other thing that was in the film, which I wonder if this had just been a straight concert film, whether they would have included, was the negotiations that their lawyer had with the Altamont Speedway people. We always hear the expression, show business. And the Rolling Stones were giving the audience the show. And what we were seeing here was was the business side and that seems to be very contradictory to what the myth that we're sold about hey the music is all and it's love and peace and just listen to the music and float away but the reality of it is that you need the business side to put this so-called dream so-called ideology it's all 60 year old guys in suits kind of arguing with each other right. and right. smoking cigars and there's this yeah like you say it's completely removed from the music and the uh, the whole aesthetic. There's another tier that is like what I was talking about, about the conflict of the two opposing forces. Well, there's another one too, because I think you also get like the promoter and the Stones manager versus the people that were at the Altmont Speedway. Like there's the one scene when one of the guys is talking, I think, to one of the Stones dudes saying, hey man, like, look, you know, we got to calm this down or we got to stop the show. Well, the guy's freaking out over the tent there and... Uh... What do you mean, tough shit? The, well, the guy is really freaking out. Keep, keep your, keep no, actually, I don't mean tough shit. What I mean is that if you lay successive numbers of bummers on this crowd, by the time six o'clock comes, man, they are going to be in a real mood. I'm not prepared to stand here laying just all right, well, bum trips up at, on uh, 150,000 people Woodstock, this was done, and, uh, and you were there, and you know, and announcements were made. 
And then he says, well, I don't want to bring down all these people, man. Like, I can't bring down all these people. And it's like, and then he says something about, well, I don't give a shit. And then the guy's like, well, no, like, you know, you have to give a shit. But the thing is, too, I was wanted to go back for a second, too. When you were talking about that shot during Sympathy where that biker dude's on stage with Jagger. For anyone who's never done acid or has come down off of anything, it's like, it can be horrifying. And it really looked to me, and I mean, just from, from people that have... I've talked to, not not from personal experience or anything. Oh my. Looking at that guy, he looks like he's in the throes of a really, really bad trip. And he's he, he looked like he, he's doing everything he can to keep his wig on straight. And he's looking at Jagger and he's looking like, do I kill him or not kill him? And the guy's just looking like, you could just see like on his face, like just that he's clenched his teeth and he's just trying to like, his lips all curled up and you can see the guy's, in the throes of, of something like a massive. No, it bad. just it just looks like pure hatred of violence to me. Is yeah, but, but it looks like he's that, also coming down yeah, off of something yeah, like the guy yeah. so wound up, like he's so high that he's like looked like he was turning into like primitive man. And Jagger's completely probably oblivious to it because the guy's kind of in the background, you know, like but right beside him at the same time. If you thought the Kennedy assassination was a big deal, imagine if Jagger got his wig split there right during Sympathy for the Death. And you know, they wound up getting murdered right on stage, man. Like, please allow me to introduce myself. Why I'm a man aware and taste. Been around for a long, long year. So many men so big. You remember there's a shot where one of the Hell's Angels also during Sympathy for the Devil, is whispering something in Jagger's ear. And he goes mm-hmm. from being this whirling dervish dancing performer on stage, and he gets this look on his face where he just almost stops everything for a second. It's almost like yeah. the yeah. Hell's Angels saying, you better keep these people under control, otherwise we're going to give you what for. And Jagger looks genuinely frightened, and he thinks... We're in this beyond our control. But hey, man, why should he be frightened? He's a street fighting man. <laughs> <laughs> i got to say that the, the Males Brothers and Charlotte's wearing do an amazing job of building the tension. You know, once the film cuts to Altamont's location and you see all the, uh, you know, all the young hippies turning up. Right. And as the, you know, various other bands are playing throughout the day and all the sort of production issues they're having. And the, the tension in the crowd just gets... I mean, it's palpable, isn't it? And it just grows, right. and then the Hell's Angels show up and start sort of causing trouble and sort of strong-arming people. And by the time right. you actually get to the point where the Stones are playing, it's just—it's so tense. Just that I, right. I, I, I know this is kind of hindsight because we know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's just very, very unsettling. So I found it as compelling as it is. It's a very difficult watch as well. You know, you know, I, I said the Males Brothers and uh, Charlotte's wearing did a really good job, but. I mean, you know, they've got the material to work with. As we were saying earlier, they were in the right place at the right time, right. where they had the camera and what they were able to actually capture. It's it's right. just phenomenal, and you know how they kind of parse all that together and just take you through that whole sequence at the end with the stone. It, you know, it's oh man, it's it's exhausting. You know, I was sweating afterwards. <laughs> you, you know what's really funny to me, and it's kind of a humorous thing, but it's not humorous, is when um, I forget who was going out in the back where the dead were coming in and the dead didn't play but then when yeah. they're talk, talking to Jerry I forget who it was where they were saying 
Yeah, man, Marty Ballin got smacked, knocked right out on stage yeah, yeah, by the yeah. Angels. And then Jerry's like, oh, that's a bummer, man. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like, the guy, the, the drummer from Santana, the younger guy, yeah, he's yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Jerry, isn't he? Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. If it would have been anybody else, it'd been like, I'm getting the fuck out of here now. Yeah. Like, the other guy's going, oh, man, it is just it's really weird, man. It's really weird. And I said to Morris, I thought I was having some type of flashback myself. Cause I'd seen this before, but I mean, but I'd never, ever remember seeing a dog walk across the stage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's the angels, there's makeup, they're singing, and all of a sudden this dog just starts to truck <laughs> What the hell? That's how low that stage was. Yeah, it was like waist height, maybe. Because by all accounts, like it was a hillside with an incline going down towards the stage. And they were saying that with so many of the people that were there, apparently the angels had to be at the front of the stage because if they didn't the crowd would have just gone right up and over the stage and or else it would have been crushed against the stage if it had been like a higher stage you know so apparently that's uh from what i've read in the in the past about different perspectives on the whole setup there was that the angels were to keep the people away from the front of the stage it was yeah. massive and that stage when you really see it it's not that big at all no, that's the thing, isn't it? It doesn't look... It looks fairly tiny. Yeah. You imagine, you know, if you were a couple of rows back, you would barely be able to see anything there. Right. It almost just looks like a tiny little kind of village fate stage in the middle of a giant field. On the Angels' perspective, though, you know, I think one of the, the smartest things that they did was to actually take their motorcycles into the crowd because then all of a sudden they're like, well, hey, somebody's touching my motorcycle. Well, yeah, you're driving through a fucking crowd, you idiot. Like, I mean, like, like, what were they, what were they thinking that, you know, it's like, well, that's the thing. Is it smart or were they just doing that because they knew that would be a good excuse to, uh, that's what I'm saying. It's like, nobody drives a motor vehicle through a crowd and suddenly says, oh my God, I've run over somebody or somebody touched my car. Well, yeah, you know, they were going to touch your car, man, because you're driving through a crowd. Yeah. Do you remember early on in the film where Charlie is in the editing suite and there's that sense of awkwardness there. He doesn't really quite know what to say. He doesn't say, oh, this is a tragedy, oh, this is terrible. So it's almost like he's making light of the conversation, saying... I mean, the way they cleared the path, for instance, was incredible. And did you, were you there? Was you in that, in the party that had to be led to the stage? My goodness. I saw what they did, yeah. And that's presumably that thing about riding the motorcycle through the crowd to clear the path for them to get on stage. And as soon as I saw that bit of footage, I thought, ah, okay, that's what he's talking about. And Charlie just looks more like, I don't know what to say here. This is obviously tragic, but I'm going to make light of it. Oh, oh, Lord bless the... When the train come in the station I was going to say that another thing that added to the tension was partly the editing, and I think the editing is fantastic, and credit has to go to the four people listed as the editors, Joanne Burke, Robert Garren, Owen Gifford, and Kent McKinney. But I think by having, I think there was something like 30 people with cameras, and one of them, incidentally, was George Lucas. Oh, wow. A lot of it was all close-ups, and that sort of added to what I thought was a very claustrophobic-looking film. There were no... Nowhere to escape. There was no long shots, or very few long shots. That's interesting you say that, because I 
made a note of the fact that, that you know a lot of the story and the impact and you know the emotion that you're picking up from people it, it's because they're shooting faces yep. it's all very as you say close-up faces and you're seeing people right. react and you're seeing emotions there there's not a huge amount of people talking to each other and dialogue snippets here and there really isn't it because of that style of filming you feel like you're in the crowd and in yeah, a way you right. almost feel like you could potentially have been in grievous bodily harm and a lot of the shots of the violence in the crowd during the stone set is done from you know a camera at, you know, probably i think behind charlie watts uh, so but you're getting right. to see all that violence the punch-ups and the rough-ups still pretty close you get to see what the stones see despite the fact that i think mick said he couldn't really see a lot was a lot of what was going on um, now that's a bunch of bullshit because at one point he actually says hey we need a, a doctor out there somebody's really really hurt mm-hmm. so i mean for if he couldn't see anything then he wouldn't have said anything it's anticipated that the amount of kids now traveling cross country you may have anywhere from five to 20,000 kids starting to arrive sometime through the day tomorrow. They're all lining up at the airports to come in from as far away as New York. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that now? Yeah. Right. Yes. yeah. you got to be kidding. You have no idea what, what goes on here. It's, uh, it's an amazing phenomenon. It's like the lemmings of the sea. No spoilers. There is a death yep. that occurs. And I want to, again, going back to what I, something I said earlier, I want to put it to you guys. Would you consider this to be an actual snuff movie? Some people define a snuff movie as watching a movie knowing that you're going to see someone actually being killed. And I don't think people will watch this just to say, okay, well, that's where they killed Meredith Honor. But in the same regard, the way they've they released this film with the marketing, they released it with a controversial tagline. And they released it, you know, with a bit of hype behind it, knowing that this was an actual tragedy. But it's almost like they exploited it in a way, I think, as as some type of final hook to draw you into the end of of what happens. So what I want to ask you guys is, would you consider this a snuff movie, yes or no? I think that that's a fairly glib way of looking at it. I don't know. I I hope it's you are seeing somebody die for real and that isn't the point of this film right it was it was just one you know it happened and they happened to catch it but i don't think it was actually marketed as that or i don't think it was particularly exploited was it actually publicized like that so i forget the tagline but it was something about rock and roll history and tragic consequence or or something like i mean they they didn't make note of it when the film was released i think um thinking of it and putting it in those terms as well, it's kind of reducing what it actually is. Because like I say, that's, that's not the intent of it at all. And no. I'll be honest, just kind of discussing it as a snuff movie just seems, I don't know, just seems a bit unrealistic and unsavory. I don't know. I can understand why you brought that up, Tim, but I don't I don't see that at all. So Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with you, Bernie. I don't think that this is a snuff film. It really is more a blink and you'll miss it. In fact, they even have to pull the film back a bit in the editing suite for you to see where the gun was. And Meredith Hunter had a gun, and that was how the Hell's Angels said that they justified putting him out. It's funny, though, isn't it? Because watching this, I didn't know that that was the case. I knew that a Hell's Angel stabbed a guy. Yep. I didn't know that the guy had a gun. And it's strange that fact almost seems to be a little bit obscure to justify somebody stabbing him. It was just kicked off and stabbed the guy for no reason. And it's like, well... I think a few minutes beforehand, the Hells Angels had gone and, un- from what I understand, 
in an unprovoked attack had pushed him around and that's where he sort of thought I'm not right, going to put up you. with it he was already on a methamphetamine trip so you know who knows what he was right. he was capable of but that was from his perspective this was an act of revenge this is not him just sort of coming to a Rolling Stones concert and wanting to take someone out it sort of brought to mind another film and but very different in what the visuals would have been and I'm thinking of the Werner Herzog film Grizzly Man where mm-hmm. there is obviously a very gory death captured on screen and what we see in that film is Herzog in the editing suite looking through the moviola at the death so we don't see the death no. of, uh, of uh, Timothy I've forgotten his surname uh, Treadwell Timothy Treadwell we see Herzog's reaction to it but actually it wasn't captured on film at all what he was listening to uh, was right. the audio of it audio uh, recording wasn't it yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah. Yeah. right 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 but this but I know what you're saying but this is still I think very different and I I mean I'm not sure that I read anything anywhere that said that it was publicized as come see the money shot in this film this is in fact I really think that the death of Meredith Hunter is almost treated as just like a little detail at the end right. of the film the real drama the real build-up is you know, the first half of the film everything's going right the stones are having a great time on this American tour and they go and do this final concert that they're going to do for free in Altamont and one by one things go wrong. We get an impression of what the Altamont concert is going to be like. We get like a whole 10 minute sequence of the camera just going through the crowd, people on acid trips, people having a good time. Then we get to see our first instances of the Hells Angels coming in and with seemingly unprovoked attacks, beating up a guy, rolling around on the ground. The stones coming in by Chopper making their way to the trailer and this the security detail of uh, Hell's Angels. And one other guy who we do see at the Madison Square Garden concert. Do you remember there's a moment in the Madison Square Garden concert where people were rushing the stage, but the security guys there, they just picked them up and put them off stage, and that's as bad as it went. There's this whole build-up of dread. I just wonder if Altamont had been just another concert, whether the film would have just been a record of Madison Square Garden, and that's it. Well, what's interesting, yeah. too, is that I've read accounts of Altamont, Paul Kantner, and Grace Lick, and one of the Burrito Brothers... And people said that they had felt that there was a real weird vibe to Altamont, even from the beginning, that they had felt it was just different from other festivals. And that was even before the Angels showed up, that people had felt like, you know, there was just something about it that was just off. This has come up again and again and again. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, the Angels being there didn't help matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, if I might just bring up for a few minutes a few of the other Rolling Stones films because as I said at the start of the show it seems that each film is a reflection of the music that they'd put out at the time and who they were and their time in the counterculture if you want to put it like that so uh, I want to bring up three other films in particular and talk about Gimme Shelter's place in that so a very good friend Colin McCowan had gone and sent me a copy of a film called Charlie Is My Darling. I mean, just because you work together, you work together a lot, you see each other a lot all the time. People expect when you go out, like we go shopping or something, they expect to see five of you. They always say, where are the others? And actually there are 
two films with that name. The original footage had long been lost and so it was rebuilt up in 2010. But I've seen the original version as it was shown or broadcast. And that was a film about the Rolling Stones tour of Ireland back in 1965. Did either of you get a chance to watch either version of this? No, no, I didn't, I'm afraid. No, I All didn't right. have time, unfortunately. No, it's okay. Look, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very quick on it. That film couldn't be further away from Gimme Shelter than, than that. In fact, in a way, it almost looks like it could have been about the Beatles because you had the Rolling Stones you know, dressed nicely and snazzily and their audience was primarily teenage girls. I mean, there were some teenage guys, but there was a lot of screaming going on and the reaction to them was like the reaction to any other big pop band of the day. And it's sort of like a, a fly-on-the-wall documentary interviewing people in the streets interviewing band members, just cameras overlooking them on meetings and, and the like, and it's all very nice and safe. This is not the dangerous band or the dangerous image of the band that we get later on. You see Mick Jagger and he's talking to the cameras saying, oh, well, I don't know where we'll be in a couple of years. You know, we, we're just making our music our way. And it's a very safe sort of film. And that's the impression, you know, they were this singles band. They're making this great music, well, the, you know, these great singles and the like. But it presents that, if not quite clean-cut image, but a very different image to what came along later on. And then I want to sort of make mention of a film that came out. Well, it, it actually didn't come out. It was The Stones wanted to have it banned. And in 1972, so we're talking three years after Altamont, it was a documentary made by a guy called Robert Frank about the Rolling Stones tour of the US in, I think, 1972. And the film is called Cocksucker Blues. Well, I wait. In Leicester Square Where the calm is the look in my eye Yeah, I'm leaning on Nelson's column But all I do is talk to the line you can only get it as a bootleg. It's, you know, the Stones went to court to make sure that it never got shown in public and the judge nearly gave them their way. Basically, he went and said that the film could only ever be shown once a year in public and only if the director, Robert Frank, was to be in attendance at the screening. The expression sex, drugs and rock and roll, I don't know when it originated, but it could have originated with this film because... It's not a pleasant watch. It's a really difficult watch. You get a little bit of concert footage, probably the most exciting bit musically in it is where you see the Stones on stage performing Satisfaction with Stevie Wonder. But the film is otherwise about hedonism. It's about the times. And there's a moment where you see some groupies on the Rolling Stones private airplane and you get a couple of the roadies just ripping these groupies clothes off you see a moment where one of the roadies is with one of the groupies and they're shooting up heroin and just another moment where you see that same roadie I think he's like at a business meeting and he just takes out a needle and just injects himself during this business meeting the Stones themselves you don't see them taking part in any of that sort of stuff but the sex scene on the plane the Stones are just standing around watching so they're 
complicit in all this. Uh, the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it could have been originated with this film. People being interviewed like Marshall Chess, who I think was one of the managers of the Stones on this particular tour. Armit Hertigun shows up. The uh, the guy started Atlantic Records. Uncle Armit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Andy Warhol shows up. But their place in the film is really not so important as to what the overall mood of the film is. So that's sort of reflecting like three years after Altamont. You, it couldn't be further away from the image that you take away of Mick Jagger's shock at the end of Gimme Shelter. It's like they've learnt nothing. They come in and right. it's hedonism all the way and it's like Meredith Hunter never existed. The only thing that they've learnt is, well, we're not using Hell's Angels as our security detail. <laughs> At the time, just as a side note, there was a film called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, which is the film that they did release. And that's just basically a concert film from that 1972 tour. And I've not seen all of that, but I've seen part of that. As a concert film goes, it's great, but it's the sanitized image, if you will, or the image that I'm going to say Mick and Keith wanted the general public to see. They didn't want them seeing Cocksucker Blues. Right. And then in the 2000s, Martin Scorsese basically trying to do what he did with the last waltz for the band doing for the stones shine a light so their guests aren't scheduled to be here till around 6 or 605 who's guests the meet and greet guests mr clinton's oh, guests. oh we just done it doing no it. no you met and greet you you met and greeted the, the president and he's got 30 guests coming oh so oh, well, we're okay. not going to do that till like five after six and that's a long way from dangerous i mean it's a it's a great document in terms of the stones as a band but you know they're playing with christina aguilera and jack white and buddy guy coming on as guests but it's a concert film with all the lights and spectacle and everything looks slick and perfect we have a band that's a legacy band playing for their 50 60 year old fans and you know possibly some younger people who you know know that wow yeah the rolling stones i'm going to get to see the rolling stones but this is not the rolling stones of those earlier films and that's why every film in its style reflects the time right oh yeah absolutely i mean even uh the one you forgot like uh let's let's spend the night together from the 80s and then that was from the tattoo you tour it was a different variation of the stones was that the one where going to a go-go was i think the right. single from that yep. one yeah okay yeah yeah i mean look, there's there's a ton of films i mean i know that a few years ago there was a documentary called crossfire hurricane which i haven't seen and right. i know that some people have said yeah it's a really good film but i doubt it would tell you as much as gimme shelter would or as right. cocksucker blues tells you about the band it, it, you might get so like yeah here's a chronology this is where we started yeah we bonded over muddy waters records and howling wolf records yeah we played and we, yeah we got up to some stuff i don't know i haven't seen crossfire hurricane maybe i'm not selling it straight maybe i'm not doing right by it but i think that those fly on the wall films are probably a more accurate indication of who the stones were the times that they were in of course mind you any film is a product of what the director wants you to see and i've already gone and said like at the start of the show that gimme shelter in a way presents itself as in the style of a work of fiction because they deliberately say right we're going to build things up we're going to go back and forth medicine Square Gardens negotiations Hell's Angels involvement go back to Madison Square Gardens and so it is built up as a fictitious film 
Wood. So maybe it's not necessarily a, a documentary in the... Well, it is a documentary, but it's not told in the straight sense of chronology. It still presents itself as something that happened and were the Stones complicit as, as well as the Hells Angels were in that it asked a lot of those questions and I don't know if even whether that film is mentioned in Crossfire Hurricane or not one of our listeners who knows better you listen to this please post to the See Here page I mean eventually I might get around to watching it but well like I said earlier the primary importance that uh, Give Me Shelter has is that everybody always looks at the Manson murders in 69 as the end of the age of flower power I really think it was Altmont to me, Altmont was the sobering up of American youth. I think Altmont, to me, was the time when they're saying, okay, look, the show's over. You know, wake the fuck up. You know, like, you know, shake off your drugs. This is where it's going. You know, it's gone bad. Like, you know, it's all been a sham. Look, I think, you know, what was going on in Vietnam, plus what was happening right. with Charles Manson, was the coffin at the end of the 60s, and Altamont was like the nails in the coffin, if you want to use that old tired analogy. Yeah. But this happened in December 1969. This was the last month right. of the 60s. Well, the very end. And 1969 yep. had seen a lot of stuff. Now, I thought that Kent State University might have been 1969, but I think that's actually 1970. Oh. But the tragedy of that would have been a very strong part of 1969 in the end of the 60s. But it, like a lot of people have gone, a lot of Beatles fans have said, well, you know, Let It Be was the end of the 60s dream. I mean, no, it's just a very depressing film about the end of a rock band. But yeah, Gimme Shelter, I think in terms of what happened is far more important of film I mean that's what makes it doesn't it I mean with us being able to look back on those events now I think any value that the film has and I think it has a lot of value I, I really enjoyed it I think it's a very very good film but I don't think that's because of the Rolling Stones I think it's just because it captured that moment you know as you're saying it, it captured that that final nail in the coffin it was just yeah. right right time and the, the people who were there filming it and putting it together were uh, craftsmen and women to the extent that they just turned it into this sort of fantastically depressing but compelling, you know, kind of document of, of the end of the 60s, the end of flower power, the end of the dream. Right. So and I, I just wanted to say as well, uh, quick aside, you, you mentioned Vietnam. There's a couple of scenes in this towards the end where uh, the start getting in a helicopter and a helicopter and flying away and they also, um, they're loading, I think, Meredith Hunter's body into a helicopter. Right. Right, and that flies away, and that's you know that's like uh, people leave the troops leaving Vietnam, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It really sort of struck that chord with me, you know. When you see this film and you see the angels where they're wearing their leathers, and you know you see these guys carrying pool cues, you don't want to fuck with them, and yet these kids are thinking, well. He's not going to split my head, man. I'm into peace. I'm into love. Like, uh, you know, and it's just like, oh no, my friend. Like, he'll split your head open like a cantaloupe. Like, I, he I, doesn't. I don't know if they were thinking that though. There's a lot of scared-looking people in that audience. Oh yeah, there there is a lot of scared right? people. But I think that only comes after the fact that they start seeing what they do. You know, initially, it's just kind of like they're just there as a, oh, they're just here as a presence, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know, it's the same way, you know, when you go to a protest and everyone's like, oh, the police are just there as a presence. And then when it starts, it, it sets the off. gas starts raining down. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then they come up with the truncheons and the clubs and, yeah. you know, and everything. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, hey, man, peace. I don't I don't want any trouble. And then it's too late for that, you know, and, and, and that's where it all 
boils down into chaos. You, you know, know? I, I think that the Hells Angels' relation to the stones is something like reality to the great pretenders you know the stones always sort of made out that they were the bad boys of rock and roll but after watching this film you can never listen to that stone song playing with fire quite the same way again you know don't play with me because you're playing with fire and you can just imagine that guy who was looking at mick jagger on the stage would have looked at him and thought yeah that's funny it was just an affectation by the stones it was them trying to uh uh, I don't know, increase their cachet and coolness by, you know, getting the Hells Angels to come and help them out. It's like, yeah, it's Rolling Stones, Hells Angels, yeah, cool. But they kind of got bit on the ass, didn't they? With the whole thing about the stones, like with the Satanic Majesty's request, there's been people that have written about how there was allegations that, you know, they were into a little bit of the old uh, black magic and stuff like that, and that... Actually, Altmont was some type of hex or some bad juju was going down that the Stones were just kind of reveling in it. Or they were actually trying to brew up some chaos or something. I mean, and, and, and you know, people have actually insinuated that there's some weird reason, like I said, like people have felt there was a bad vibe right from the start. And like you said, Bernie, you know, they bit off more than they could chew with the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and, you know, of course, I don't believe any of that bullshit, but find that a bit difficult to believe i think there's yeah, just exactly, you know, a bunch exactly. of arrogant twats who thought they could uh... i mean it's been said that their satanic majesty's request was their answer to sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band they were just doing right. a psychedelic album and right. they thought, all right this is what's selling at the moment and look i'm not gonna sort of get a whole bunch of irate rolling stones fans around my neck but <laughs> but us beatles people have often gone and said yet yeah, that the stones were just sort of tailing on oh what have the Beatles done oh right well we'd better follow them and it, <laughs> when it when it got to beggar's banquet they thought you know fuck this we're just going to go back to our roots and play blues influence rock and that's when they ran off that string of absolutely peerless albums in my opinion I love those four albums so they found their own way by doing what they did best which was you know ditch the psychedelia that's not the band that they started out as they started as a great blues based pop band and then they sort of matured into a great rock band from that point but once they said right okay we're gonna do our own thing then that's when it all came good for them in my opinion i know i'm gonna get some people john tector if you're listening to this please forgive me don't know fucking about we've had enough of being polite get out go away please going back to what tim was saying about the kind of occult and satanism kind of angle that stuff was just in the air at the time anyway wasn't it i mean you know zeppelin were dabbling in that Crowley, that whole kind of process church was yeah, around um, that period and yeah, yeah. Hollywood yeah. and so on. So that was just, I don't know, that was something that was in the air anyway. Tim, remember a, a couple of years ago, I don't think you were around for this one, Burn, but Tim, remember we did that episode with Robert Hubbard. Hey, Rob, if you're listening, we did the uh, episode on Catch My Soul. Yep. So, but we discussed that there'd been this whole string of religious rock operas, you know, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell, right. and then Catch My Soul right. comes along and captures a completely different mood. Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell were the biggest things since sliced bread, and Catch My Soul as a stage play was phenomenally successful in England, but as a film, it played like a couple of cinemas and did a drive-in. You had the assertion, Tim, you said, well, the difference is Charlie Manson. Those earlier musicals had captured the spirit of the 60s mm-hmm. and all of a sudden Catch My Soul, it reflected a different time. And that's a story of Othello. There's a, a, yep. a death in it. There's a murder. There's uh, people disbelieving each other. 
Iago, who's spreading the bad word about Michael Cassio and making the Othello character mistrust his wife. And then that film, in a way, because you went and said, right, that almost spelled the end of the 60s. You know, Charles Manson had happened, and that film, in a way, not probably not intending to, because it's based on a you know, several right. hundred year old text, but for the time it reflected the end of the 60s and I'd sort of say that you know Gimme Shelter and Catch My Soul though very different films would have made an interesting double feature based on what I think they represent oh yeah absolutely they're both bookmarks of the same thing though like I'm saying just the, the real end of the, the 60s table bernie your final thoughts would you recommend this film uh yeah absolutely um i didn't even know that this was actually uh the males brothers uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that in itself it should be enough for people to be interested to uh, to have a look at this film i think it's, it's fantastic and i'm speaking to somebody as, as i mentioned earlier who was at best ambivalent towards the stones but i think this is a really interesting powerful documentary place and a time and a feeling and a zeitgeist whatever you want to call it i would absolutely recommend that anybody with any interest in that period check it out well bernie just said you know regardless of whether you're a stones fan or not if you're a fan of documentaries and of the history of documentaries in the 20th century I think that this is a definitive piece of history, the way that they put this together. And I think it stands like, you know, if you were to study film in university, I know on a lot of curriculums, they've actually put this in there. This is like the Zapruder film of musical documentaries. It was a moment that was captured. It wasn't intended to be captured the way it was, but it was what went down. Nobody anticipated it. Boom, you know, everyone was there at the right time, the right place. I think, yeah, I highly recommend this, but I think for a lot of people, your opinions may change about the Rolling Stones after you see this too, because of the attitudes that they take in regards to seeing the footage and just the whole, and being in the midst of it all. But then again, how could I really say? I wasn't there standing in the midst of a pit of Hell's Angels trying to basically um, get paid to perform and uh, not get my head split open. So what do I know? I mean, there's a documentary, like just a 10 minute short film that came out in 2006. I only watched this yesterday, but it makes an interesting epilogue. It's called Lot 63 Grave C, directed by a guy called Sam Green. You can find it on YouTube. And basically, so the aftermath, which the film never gets to cover, is that Meredith Hunter ended up getting buried in this cemetery about 20, 30 miles away from San Francisco, but never had a headstone erected. So saying there, Tim, you wonder if you'll see the stones if, as a fan in a different light. So you sort of wonder, did the stones actually ever make any inquiries? Can we do something for the family? Can we put up a headstone? Was it sure. rejected? 
and you can ask all those sorts of questions. I mean, I don't know, but this film, which actually is still not the final word because it was basically this uh, a little bit of footage from the Males Brothers film and following a guy who worked at the cemetery showing where the gravesite of Meredith Hunter was and saying that there's no headstone. We don't know whether his mother could ever afford to put up the headstone, whether there was finances or not. And apparently in the intervening years, a headstone has been put up. But it's still brought into sharp relief the fact that the stones just went on. They watched this film footage and they allowed Gimme Shelter to be put out. But... Did they ever try to get in contact with with the victim's uh, surviving right. family or, right. or what? So because I think a lot of people could say, well, hey, the guy pulled the gun, so he got what was coming to him. He was a criminal. Like you know, they could justify it all they want, but the fact is, you know, the guy was murdered and they filmed it, and um, you, you know, you don't bring down a guy at a concert by stabbing him in the back. Can't recall any other concerts that I've heard about where that's gone and happened by the. Security security detail i'm actually amazed like at the time i mean like maybe people weren't litigation junkies like they are today but i mean i was amazed at the time that nobody from his family you know put forth you know any type of lawsuit against the stones or anything like that yeah interesting yep good point all right well there you go that's give me shelter and a huge shout out to my great friend mark moray for the loan of the criterion edition dvd our dissection our discussion about the times We'd love to know what you thought. If you're a Rolling Stones fan who's incensed that we could ever allege that they were complicit in this, please write us, post on the Facebook page. We'd love to know your thoughts. We love having discussions about this sort of thing. Bring up points that we haven't. So we're now looking into April of 2019. Actually, just one other thing. It's been really enjoyable getting back to us doing what we do, which is just the three of us sitting around and talking about a film. Because for the last few months, we've had some really terrific interviews and i've enjoyed those to bits and we've got more to come but this was why we started was the for the three of us initially the four of us to sit around and have a discussion about a film that we thought was important or something that we loved or in the case of ishtar that two of us loved <laughs> but hey oh, sorry I, I won't bring that up bring again that up. <laughs> so i just wanted to say i've really enjoyed having this check just going back to doing what we usually do really enjoyed that so next month bernie you have a film for us that the three of us are going to just sit around and do what we do. What have you picked? Yeah. Okay. It. Well, I say it's relatively new. It's very new. I believe it's still uh, showing in various territories. I'm just going to tell you what it is. It's uh, Jonas Ackerlund's Lords of Chaos. We're going to get deep oh, wow. into the Norwegian black metal next month. There we go. What okay. Tim said. Okay. This, this should be... I, I've already seen it. I'm not going to... Uh, give you an opinion as such as yet but it should be uh, an interesting discussion it's an interesting film that's it next month lords get of, your corpse paint ready lords of chaos i might actually uh, have to refer to uh, my resident metal scholar max yeah i say Who, yeah. who's that guy what are they talking about who's that i know what this is about and i think that um i mean i haven't seen it but there's i think an episode of the podcast disgraceland which covered the events that lords of chaos mm-hmm. covered so we'll get to that in april of 2019 looking forward to talking about that uh housekeeping details bernie's still managing the instagram account how do people find uh, yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we are See Here Podcast 
or at see here podcast i should say on the instagram so uh please look us up and follow us and um enjoy the uh the pictures and with uh, witty comments that i post occasionally indeed if you want to join our facebook group it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash c here s-w-h-e-a-r if you wish to send us an old-fashioned email and i love the old-fashioned emails see here podcast at gmail.com and oh yes if you wish to download our episode in a different way you can go through our various means we're at seehere.podbean.com or you can download us through iTunes or Stitcher or through Spotify or if you just happen to have an app on your device like Podcast Addict just type in See Here and all our old episodes will come into your ear holes just like that it's a wonderful thing technology I think that pretty much covers it looking forward to uh, speaking about the Tim you do at the Lords of Chaos do the voice so can we do the whole episode next month in the Cookie Monster voice? <laughs> I'm tempted. Sweet. It'll be about three minutes long as well if uh, you know if we're playing at an acceptable speed. Okay. Well, until next month, look after each other. Be nice to each other. If you see someone freaking out at a concert, hug them. Don't let anyone yeah. with a leather jacket near them. So until yeah, next... don't stab them. Be nice to them. Yeah, indeed. Right. So until That's uh, right. until next time, all the best. Cheers. Bye. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.